Good evening, my friends, and welcome to Twelve Nights of Terror, hosted by Josh Hitchens. That's me, where we'll be examining the best in holiday fear, starting with night number one, Black Christmas. My friends, welcome back. I had such a great time doing my 62 Horror Movies podcast that I've decided to continue it. I first recorded 62 Horror Movies, which is 31 episodes, each a double feature, featuring my favorite scary movies. Not the best scary movies ever made. Some of them are the best scary movies ever made, but my favorite ones. And we're going to do the same thing here with 12 Nights of Terror. Some of these movies are going to be the best of holiday horror, and some of them are just ones that I really love and think are fun and worth watching. So... Uh, We are going to structure this similarly to how I structured 62 horror movies in that most of these episodes will be examining the movies in order of their release date, um, because I always think that's an interesting thing to be able to see how trends happen and tropes evolve over time. The only exception to this is going to be the first episode, the episode you're listening to now, and the final episode on night number 12, which will air on Christmas Day. I am for the first and the last episodes of 12 Nights of Terror are going to be featuring my two favorite Christmas horror movies, and we're going to start off with perhaps the most famous Christmas horror movie of them all, and justifiably so, Black Christmas, which was released in 1974. It's a Canadian horror film uh, directed by Bob Clark and written by Roy Moore. Roy Moore originally wrote this script under the title Stop Me, and he was inspired to write the script for this movie by two things. One was a series of real murders that happened in Montreal during the Christmas season in the 1940s, where uh, young, the young son of a family killed his mother, father, and his sister, and was later caught. And it is also based on the urban legend, the classic, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, I'm sure you're all familiar with, but just in case you're not, it's the story of a babysitter who is babysitting two children who are asleep upstairs, and she keeps getting these strange phone calls with a man saying scary, threatening things, And finally, she calls the police. They say, the next time the person calls, stay on the line as long as possible so we can trace the call. And the man calls again and says, in most versions, something to the effect of, check the children. And then she does check the children, and she sees that the children have been murdered. 
And then the police call her. She picks up the phone and they say the calls are coming from inside the house, but it's too late. Uh, the Babysitter and the Man Upstairs would also be adapted very famously into a horror movie released several years after Black Christmas called When a Stranger Calls. That was released in 1979, but Black Christmas in 1974 beat it by a couple years, and it does use that exact line, the calls are coming from inside the house. Now, Black Christmas is famous for a lot of things, and it's one of those movies that was kind of underappreciated at the time of its release and underappreciated for a long time, but really, especially in the 1990s and 2000s up to the present day, has really undergone a huge critical reevaluation, and it is now regarded not just as one of the best Christmas horror movies ever made, but one of the best horror movies ever made, full stop. And I have to say I agree with it. This is an extremely, extremely well-made movie. Um, the script is great, the direction is great, um, and it has a great cast, and we'll get into more of that later. Um, but Black Christmas has something in common with another movie that we'll be examining a little later on in this series, in that it is known by many different titles. I mean, now it's known as Black Christmas, but when it was first released, uh, it was released, of course, first in Canada, uh, where it was made, and it actually, uh, with a budget of about uh, $620,000 made over f a little over $4 million, making Black Christmas still to this day the third highest grossing Canadian film of all time. So in Canada, it was a huge hit. Um, the Canadian Film Awards that year, Margot Kidder won Best Actress in a Leading Role uh, for this film, and we'll talk more about her later. Um, but then, when the movie was released in America, uh, about two months after it was released in Canada, the Americans decided to retitle Black Christmas because the American studio thought that audiences would think, based on the title, that it was a black exploitation film, uh, which were very popular at the time. So they retitled Black Christmas to Silent Night, Evil Night. Not to be confused with Silent Night, Bloody Night, um, a Christmas-themed horror film that came out in 1972, uh, two years before Black Christmas. Also not to be confused with Silent Night, Deadly Night, which came out in the 1980s, um, very controversially featuring a killer Santa Claus. Of course, not the only film to feature a killer Santa Claus. We're going to be talking about several of them. Uh, and when... It was released in America under the name Silent Night, Evil Night. The movie completely flopped at the box office. Didn't do very well. But then the studio realized that they had clearly made a mistake. And so they re-released the film under its original title, Black Christmas, uh, a couple months later, in, 19, in the summer of 1975, um, where it actually did pretty good business. Um, but there is one other title that this movie uh, was known by at one time. Uh, Black Christmas was scheduled to make its uh, American network television premiere on Saturday, January 28th, 1978, under the title Stranger in the House, which, again, I don't know why you would 
mess with the title Black Christmas, but whatever. Uh, but there is a problem uh, because two weeks prior uh, to Black Christmas, aka Stranger in the House, being uh, shown on NBC, there uh, were a series of really horrific murders and attacks at the Chi Omega sorority house on the campus of Florida State University in Tallahassee. And Black Christmas also takes place in a sorority house where women are murdered. So the networks decided to pull Stranger in the House, a.k.a. Black Christmas, from the schedule. And it was later discovered that those murders at the sorority house on the campus of Florida State University were perpetrated by serial killer Ted Bundy. So there are lots of really interesting intersections with Black Christmas with real-life um, murders that happened and also the urban legend, the babysitter, and the man upstairs. Uh, Bob Clark, who directed this movie and directed it extremely well, uh, is also probably best known for another Christmas movie, uh, that he made in the 1980s called A Christmas Story. I am sure you've all seen it before. It's the one that is uh, on for 24 hours straight on some TV channel or another every holiday season. Complete, uh, Completely different in tone from Black Christmas. Um, but I've always thought that that was kind of funny, <laughs> that the same man directed both movies, and that both movies are really excellent uh, depictions of Christmas. And like I talked about very often in the 62 horror movies episodes, you know, the movies that really get the feeling of Halloween right, you know, the way it looks and the way people experience it. And I think Black Christmas does that as well. Uh, the sorority house ha is beautifully decorated with Christmas decorations, you know, and you have many scenes that are primarily lit by these multicolored Christmas lights. It really does evoke the feeling of the time. Uh, unfortunately, the snow that you see in Black Christmas is all fake um, because, you know, you're filming in Canada in the winter of 1973-1974. You'd think there'd be snow, but there was not snow. So around the sorority house uh, especially, they had to use fake snow that was made out of some sort of chemical foam. Uh, and it was noted the following spring after filming that the grass grew even lusher and greener than before. So whatever was in that fake snow uh, ended up being uh, very good for the grass around the house. Um, the sorority house in the film was scouted by uh, director Bob Clark, uh, who chose it mainly for two reasons. One, that it had a really great creepy attic, which is necessary to the story, but also for the staircase that is in the house, um, because the way the staircase is designed, uh, there are some points when you could see, you know, someone's feet or the bottom half of their legs on the staircase, but not be able to see their upper half. And that is very important to Black Christmas, because in Black Christmas, you never get a full view of the killer. Um, you see bits and pieces of the killer, most famously. Um, there's one really terrifying shot where you see the killer's eye um, through a crack in a door. Um, that shot's launched a thousand nightmares. Um, 
But other than that, you don't see the killer. You mostly see the killer through point of view camera. Um, and a lot of people think that Black Christmas was the first film to horror film to use point of view camera, but it's actually not. Uh, Peeping Tom that came out, um, I think 1960, same year as Psycho, uh, was the first horror movie to use point of view camera. But Black Christmas uses point of view camera in really interesting and inventive ways because um, there was no steady cam at this point that invention was a few years away so what the cinematographer did is he created a camera rig that was so the camera actually was on his head top of his head which is how you get um a lot of those great pov shots especially in the beginning of the film when you see the killer uh, scaling the outside of the sorority house and getting into the attic. Um, Black Christmas is also famous in another way in that uh, the story has been passed down that Black Christmas inspired Halloween. Um, Bob Clark told this story a lot. Um, and some people think it might be apoc apocryphal. We'll never really know. But... Uh, the way Bob Clark, the director, tells it is that one of the big, big fans of Black Christmas after it was, after its initial release was a young up-and-coming writer-director by the name of John Carpenter. And John Carpenter had a conversation with Bob Clark, like, if you ever made a sequel to Black Christmas, what would it be like? And Bob Clark said at that point he wasn't interested in doing a sequel to Black Christmas. He was very happy with it the way it had turned out. But uh, Bob Clark said, well, I guess the killer would escape from a mental asylum and start killing again. And uh, John Carpenter said, what would you call that sequel? And Bob Clark uh, reportedly said, I would call it Halloween. Uh, which seemed the natural progression, you know, horror movie at Christmas, horror movie on Halloween night itself. And a couple of years later, uh, when John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were writing what would become Halloween, um, they asked Bob Clark if they could use the seed of that idea and the title, and Bob Clark said yes. Um, now that puts Bob Clark in a really, you know, good uh good light so we don't quite know if that's true um but there is one undeniable connection between black christmas and halloween in that halloween's script was originally called the babysitter murders um also based on the idea of the urban legend the babysitter and the man upstairs and was eventually changed to halloween now one of the great things about Black Christmas and one of the things I think really makes it work is its incredible cast. Um, a lot of people also give Black Christmas the credit for being the first slasher film, and that's really debatable too. I mean, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre came also came out in 1974, same year Black Christmas came out, but you also have Psycho back in 1960, which some people argue is the first slasher movie. And I would argue that you can go back even further to the 1945 film adaptation of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. That is has all the hallmarks of a slasher film. Um, but Black Christmas is 
very different from most of the slasher films that followed it, especially the slasher films in the 80s, in that its cast, uh, central characters are all women, but Bob Clark and screenwriter Roy Moore wanted this film to be different and the way it depicted women to be different. He didn't want them to be objectified. He didn't want them to have any nude scenes or sex or sex scenes. He wanted them to really be full dimensional human beings, you know, that were had complex personalities and had agency and that you really cared about. Um, and I think they, along with the cast, truly succeeded in doing that. And that's what I think elevates Black Christmas um, over most slasher movies in that all of the characters are incredibly distinct, even the characters that we don't get to see for very long um, as they get killed. Uh, and they're pretty, some of them are pretty brave and, ra and radical for the time um, in a way that you didn't see often in cinema. So let me talk a little bit about the great cast of this movie. Um, and I'll talk more about the plot of the movie itself. Uh, so leading this film, you have Olivia Hussey as Jess. And uh, I run, it's funny because I first was uh, exposed to Black Christmas through um, the uh, anthology, antho anthology documentary series, The 100 Scariest Movie Moments, which aired on Bravo all the time back in the 1990s. And Black Christmas was on that list. And Olivia Hussey is interviewed in the segment about it. And she tells the story that in the 1980s, she was up for a part in the Steve Martin romantic comedy, Rock Sam. And when Olivia Hussey met Steve Martin, he said, oh, you starred in my favorite movie of all time. And Olivia Hussey, of course, thought he was talking about Romeo and Juliet, the 1968 film directed by Franco Zeffirelli, um, in which Olivia Hussey played Juliet in her film debut at age 15. Um, still a very beloved movie. Uh, and Steve Martin said, oh, no, 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 Black Christmas. I've seen it about 27 times. And Olivia Hussey, the, the reason why she signed on to do this movie was because she had a, a psychic that she trusted. And the psychic said, you're going to make a film in Canada that will earn a great deal of money. And then the offer for Black Christmas, which was going to be filmed in Canada, came. And that's why she, accept, <laughs> why she accepted it. Um, and she, Olivia Hussey was very attached to this psychic. Um, Margot Kidder uh, said that while on set, uh, Olivia Hussey was obsessed with the idea of falling in love and marrying Paul McCartney um, and that her psychic was going to help her. So all that aside, Olivia Hussey is really terrific in this movie. She is exactly the anchor that you want. Um, and her character has a, re has a really great storyline for the time period in that she realizes that she is uh, pregnant by her boyfriend, Peter, and she announces to him that she doesn't want the baby. She's going to have an abortion. And her boyfriend, very typical of the time and still today, is like, how could you be so selfish? How could you make this decision without me? And she refu refuses to give in. She's like, no, this basically like this is my body i'm going to do what i want with my own body mm -hmm. which is really really great for 1974 um 
Uh, her boyfriend, Peter, is played by Keir DeLay, uh, who is most famous for playing the role of Steve Bowman in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, director Bob Clark, of course, had seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, really admired Keir DeLay's performance, and offered him the role of Peter. He was um, Bob Clark's first choice. And Keir DeLay said yes to the movie because his parents lived not far from where the movie was going to film and he liked the idea of being able to see them. So that's why he did it. And we're used nowadays, of course, to slasher movies featuring like teenagers or college age uh, university students, as is the case in Black Christmas, played by actors who are older uh, than the characters that they are playing. Uh, but most of the cast of this movie were in their like early to mid-20s. Keir DeLay was 38 years old um, at the time he made this movie. Um, and, you know, to the credit of his genes, that he, he really doesn't look it. Um, he's, very, he's very, very good. And um, then you have Margot Kidder as Barb, who, as I said, won the Canadian Film Award for Best Leading Actress uh, for this movie. And the character she plays, Barb, is... Again, is again a character that I don't think you had seen a lot um, in horror movies by this time. In that, Barb um, likes to drink. She likes to smoke. She's very sure of herself, confident and outspoken. You know, not afraid to give her opinion. Um, and just she, uh, Margot Kidder loved the wildness of the character of Barb. Um, and Margot Kidder uh, said that the reason why she became an actor in the first place is that she wanted to be able to show different sides of who she really was without people realizing that they were seeing who she really was. Um, and she went very method uh, playing Barb. She in uh, most of the scenes where she's drinking, insisted on actually drinking real alcohol. Um, and there's a lot of scenes like that. Um, but she's really terrific um, in this movie, uh, even though, uh, well, I won't say how long you get to see her. That that would be a spoiler. Uh, but she's wonderful. Um, Margot Kidder, of course, would later go on to huge fame, as Lois Lane in the Superman movie starring Christopher Reeve, which brought her to international fame and attention. And as far as horror movies go, she also played Kathy Lutz in the 1979 film adaptation of the Amityville Horror, which she later rent went on record as saying was a piece of shit. Um, and she's not exactly wrong. The Amityville Horror is not a great movie, but it is an iconic horror movie of the 70s. You also have Andrea Martin as Phyllis, the um, bespeckled and curly-haired sorority sister. And Andrea Martin um, was actually a last-minute replacement for Gilda Radner. Gilda Radner had accepted the part, um, but had to withdraw because she got cast in a little show called Saturday Night Live. Um, so Bob Clark went cast Andrea Martin, who was also part of the Second City improv troupe that had included Gilda Radner and Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, all those legends. 
Um, and Andrea Martin would go on to win, so far, two Tony Awards for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical. Uh, and she's actually received more Tony Award nominations for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical than anyone else in history. And she is still working today. Um, huge, huge talent. Uh, and we also have... In a really, really funny role, uh, Marion Waldman as Mrs. Mack, who is the house mother who um, hides her whiskey and bottles of whiskey in the Bible and in the toilet tank and gargles whiskey when she brushes her teeth. Um, She's absolutely hilarious and brings a lot of much-needed comedy uh, to the film uh, as much of it as she is in. And the role of Mrs. Mack, the house mother, was actually originally offered to Betty Davis, um, who turned it down. Uh, and, and I can't really blame Betty Davis for that. I honestly can't really see her uh, in the in this part, even though, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, she did do a lot of really great horror movie roles. But I, I find it hard to imagine Betty Davis at this point in her career Uh, being willing to make as much of a fool of herself as the character of Mrs. Mack demands. Um, And Marion Waldman is just a delight in it. Um, Then you have Lynn Griffin as Claire. Uh, And she uh, got the part because her mother was her agent and insisted on her audition. Um, And, but then Lynn Griffin was very upset um, that she uh, doesn't have much screen time in the movie, I'll say that. Um, but she's incredibly memorable, um, because the face that you see both on the poster of Black Christmas and that you see many times throughout the movie of, um, Claire's, you know, wide-eyed, open-mouthed face covered in a plastic bag that has smothered her, uh, is really, really unsettling. Uh, and, For those scenes, Lynn Griffin actually had a real plastic bag tied around her head, Um, but she said she didn't mind it because she was actually a very, very good swimmer, so she was used to holding her breath for long periods of time and keeping her eyes open without blinking, Um, so she, you know, didn't didn't find it too hard to do. And you also have... John Saxon as uh, Lieutenant Fuller, the sort of policeman who shows up. And you've seen John... John Saxon is one of those actors that you've seen in a million movies and you may not know who he is. Um, But he's always just a great character actor. And he is... Uh, Also in the horror movies, the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and also the later sequel in the 1994 Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So as a, for horror fans, uh, you've probably seen him in those movies. And John Saxon was actually a literally almost last minute replacement for this role, um, the actor Edmund O'Brien was originally cast in the role of Lieutenant Fuller. Uh, Edmund O'Brien won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in 1954 for Joseph L. Mankiewicz's film The Barefoot Contessa. And when he arrived in Canada for filming, um, Bob Clark, the director, met him at the airport and was concerned that he got off uh, the plane in a, that Edmund O'Brien got off the plane in a wheelchair. But then he stood up and Bob Clark was like, okay, he's he's fine. Um, He's just a little frail. Um, Then they went to a restaurant and Edmund O'Brien thought he was in his hotel room. And 
didn't know any of his lines. And it became clear to Bob Clark and the crew that he couldn't do the film. Uh, he was, in fact, in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And Bob Clark had to tell him that he couldn't do the movie. And Bob Clark said that Edmund O'Brien burst into tears um, and that letting him go or firing him, just to be frank about it, was one of the hardest things he had to do in his career. So John Saxon uh, was called and offered the role 48 hours before they started filming and arrived in Canada, I think about two hours before filming his first scenes. Um, so that's the main cast of Black Christmas, and it's filled with actors who, you know, some of them were well known at the time. Olivia Hussey, Keir DeLay, and Margot Kidder were certainly already known by this time, but then filled with other actors that. Um, you may not know, you may not know, but then went on to do uh, much b bigger and greater things and go on to um, more heightened fame. So, like, there's not a weak link in this cast. Everyone is great, and it's because the acting is so good, the characters are so real and believable that the movie gets a lot of its effectiveness from that. Uh, now, the killer of Black Christmas, uh, as I said, you never fully see him, uh, but you do hear his voice um, making these obscene, slightly, uh, sometimes very scary phone calls that become scarier and scarier as the movie goes on before the characters find out that the calls are coming from inside the house. Um, the main voice of the killer who... Um, the movie seems to perhaps suggest uh, the killer's name is Billy, but it's never def definitively uh, known if that's the killer's actual real name or not. Uh, but the main voice of Billy, the voice on the phone, uh, is played by an actor named Nick Mancuso, and Bob Clark had Nick Mancuso audition for the role um, while Bob Clark was facing away from him because he didn't want to see Nick Mancuso's face or facial expressions. He just wanted to hear the voice and be terrified by the voice. And Nick Mancuso did some really extreme things uh, in recording the voice parts for this film, including um, standing on his head for long periods of time so it would put pressure on his thorax to warp the sound of his voice. Um, but there are actually... Two to three other people uh, who play Billy's voice, one of whom is Bob Clark, the director. Um, and they seem to remember there was also uh, a woman who played Billy's voice as well. And what you get when you hear these phone calls is the sound of what seems like many different voices coming out of one mouth. It's honestly, it's very, very, very similar to Mercedes McCambridge's voice work as the demon Pazuzu in The Exorcist. Um, the Exorcist came out around the time Black Christmas started uh, filming, so I, I wonder um, if they had seen if they had seen The Exorcist and that influenced the sound of the vo of the voices or not. Um, that's unknown, but it really does make it very, very unsettling. Um, now, with Black Christmas, it is hugely innovative 
in another way. And in a way that I cannot tell you right now without spoiling the ending of the movie. So what we're going to do here and what we'll do for several other movies um, in this series is we're going to take a pause and I encourage you to go watch Black Christmas. Uh, you can watch Black Christmas uh, on several different venues. It, it is online for free on YouTube. Uh, it is also on the, stream, the free streaming service Tubi. Um, but if you are a true horror fan, I hope that you are subscribed to Shudder, which is the horror streaming service. It is my favorite streaming service. Um, I think it's $5.99 a month. It's well worth it. Um, but if you have Shudder or you get Shudder, uh, you can watch Black Christmas hosted by the legendary Joe Bob Briggs. Um, on his show, The Last Drive-In. Uh, he covered Black Christmas on one of his last drive-in uh, Christmas marathons, and he has a wealth of information about the movie, um, much more than I've, gone, than I've gone into here, and I highly recommend it. Um, his commentary always enhances any movie he covers. So, I encourage you all to go watch Black Christmas, and then come back, uh, and we're going to talk about that ending. Okay, I'm going to assume that if you are listening to my voice now, that you have watched Black Christmas in its entirety. So, I think the reason why, one of the big reasons why Black Christmas is so interesting and indelible uh, and really unforgettable to so many people is its ending. Because not only do you never see the killer in Black Christmas, you never even find out who the killer is. And I can't really think of any, many or any other slasher movie that does that. Um... It's such a bold, bold choice, so against the convention of a slasher horror movie. Um, and it was a choice that was very controversial with the studio. The studio really wanted Bob Clark to film an ending that revealed who the killer was, and Bob Clark refused. Um, so what happens at the end is that you are led to believe throughout the film that the killer could perhaps be Peter, um, the boyfriend of, of Olivia Hussey's character, Jess, um, who is, you know, in a rage because she wants to abort their child. Um, but if you pay close attention to the film, you know, and I talked about that famous um, shot of the killer's eye peeping through the crack in the door, you'll notice that that eye is a different color than Kier Delay's eyes. Kier Delay has blue eyes. The eye of the killer that you see is not blue. Um, but at the end of the movie, the police and everyone assume that Peter was the killer, um, and they leave Jess alone in the Jess alone in the house because the killer's the killer's dead. She's safe now, of course. And the final shot of Black Christmas is so creepy and disturbing um, because it lingers on um, the face of Claire 
you know, still covered in plastic in the window of the attic. Both her body and the body of Mrs. Mack, the house mother, are never discovered by any of the uh, by the police in this movie. They're still there um, at the end, which is also very unusual. Doesn't you? That doesn't usually happen. And then the camera slowly pulls out on the sorority house, and as the and the phone starts to ring again. And it rings, and it rings. It rings 13 times, actually. Um, and no one picks it up. So it makes you wonder, is the killer inside the house? Has he killed Jess? And that's why she's not answering the phone. The movie doesn't tell you. The credits just roll. And it is a brilliant, brilliant ending. Um... I think both the ending credits and the opening credits for Black Christmas are hugely evocative of the of Christmas and of what has happened and in the case of the opening credits what's to come. I love in the opening credits that it um over the titles and as you see the sorority house all decorated for Christmas you hear uh, this angelic sounding choir singing Silent Night. Um, and of course the line, sleep in heavenly peace, as many of these characters will be doing uh, over the course of the film. So that is Black Christmas. Um, one of the best Christmas horror movies ever made. One of the best horror movies ever made, period. And I think it's a great way to start off our 12 Nights of Terror. My friends, thank you so much for joining me for 12 Nights of Terror, and I hope you will continue to join me all the way through till Christmas time. One episode will be released every day, all the way up to Christmas Day. And tomorrow night, for night number two, we are going, this is the only time we're going to do this, we're going to do a double feature um, of Tales from the Crypt 1972 and Tales from the Crypt 1989, uh, both the 1972 film and the 1989 TV series adapted one of the most famous EC Comics stories, and all through the house. That's coming up tomorrow. Pleasant dreams, my friends. <laughs>